Welcome to this episode of ClearedCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. For this episode of ClearedCast, I was joined by one of my favorite recruiting rock stars in the industry, Tom Weiner, who has a wealth of experience in DOD and national security recruiting, along with an amazing perspective on how modern recruiters could better leverage tech and data to their advantage. While he's joined us on the Security Clearance Careers podcast previously, today we honed in on some of the issues or obstacles that defense recruiters face in 2021 and discussed how the list is constantly growing, but also how some of the problems could be solved with simple process changes. Tom, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for bringing me in. I'm super, super happy to be here. I thought that we could start looking at the landscape from a recruiter's perspective. I think clearance jobs, our headquarter location is still going to be everyone's working remotely until September of this year, just to ensure the safety of everyone. But I know that folks actually working in industry, it looks a little bit different. What are your roles looking like? Is it going to be remote for some time, hybrid? Are there folks that are going to be expected to come back into the office? So it's interesting. So there is a lot of hybrid. There's a lot of folks that are doing, you know, certain days in the office and then expected to, you know, go half remote, half on site after that. We are seeing obviously the higher cleared positions. They remain with the expectation that everyone is going to come full back into the office, which I think is going to really create a real struggle for a lot of companies you know, after the pandemic's over. And then we have a a large portion of companies that are saying, hey, this is working. We can definitely be remote. And they're really reaping the benefits of expanding their workforce across different states, as well as, you know, saving some money on direct labor rates too. But I'd say the majority of people are going to be doing that we see are doing hybrid remote in the office. That's what we're seeing. Sure. Well, and I feel like it's a good compromise for folks that love the face-to-face interaction, love interacting with their employees, and then the folks who, you know, really enjoy the time working from home and they're able to, you know, maintain a little bit more of that work-life balance. Yeah, absolutely. We do, ironically, some people are saying, I I want to get back into the office. And that's a small portion of the candidates that we're talking to. Yeah, some people are definitely missing that team interaction and you know, I guess just the social elements of work that we're all missing. So there is a small percentage of the workforce out there that that's saying that to us as well. I don't think that's me. I love working from home. I I, (laughs) I find it so great. I mean, and you know, I've talked about in the past how companies in the private sector, when they were offering unlimited PTO, everybody thought they were totally insane. But what they found is folks weren't actually taking as much PTO. They were working while they were away. And I think that flexibility sort of it's comparable to folks working from home, that unlimited PTO piece. Yeah, for sure. The one thing which I'm really interested to see how this plays out. So if I had a 500 person, thousand person company or or even a huge company, and we were spending millions of dollars on facilities every year, I mean, that's wrapped in to the cost to the government Mm -hmm. under their, you know, their GNA costs on their pricing. So theoretically, if companies are reducing their footprint and reducing their facility space, their rates should come down. Again, I'm not an expert in that, but it seems like there's cost savings all over the place. Mm whether it's direct labor rates, whether it's, you know, facilities costs, you know, that'll translate to cost savings to the government and 
you know, increase profitability to to each company. It's it's going to be really interesting to see how this all plays out in the next few years. Sure. Well, I'm an environmentalist, so you know I love everybody working from home, reducing those commuters, especially outside the D.C. area. And I know you're in California, but with everybody transitioning to either a hybrid or even some positions working on open source work that don't need to go into a classified environment as much, it just makes recruiters' jobs that much harder because that used to be an incentive. Hey, this is a hybrid remote role. And for candidates, like, okay, when the government isn't offering remote in any capacity. So how do you think recruiters are going to combat that? Because that, I mean, recruiters jobs are, you know, hard as it is. That's really interesting too. The way that I like to look at recruiting that I don't think a lot of companies really realize this. Most of our clients are small businesses. And the majority of the DOD contracting space is mid to small businesses. And they don't necessarily think they're competing with all of the large businesses, you know, per se. You know, a small business in Idaho necessarily doesn't think they're competing with Apple for software developers. But when it comes to talent, you're competing with literally every single company out there, whether they're your direct competition or not. Adding this whole remote piece into it, you know, I think at the beginning, companies that really latch onto it and realize, look, we can have someone doing this job from anywhere. Those companies that hit the ground running and start gobbling up the people across the country are going to be way ahead of companies a few years from now who you know, wait to see if industry can make that sort of arrangement happen. And kind of once everyone is all racing for remote talent and everyone is offering hybrid or remote positions, yeah, it's going to be just as difficult as it is recruiting now. But those companies that are jumping on it and taking advantage of it, they have an incredible advantage right now. And so that would be my main advice to companies that if you're thinking about, you know, leveraging a remote workforce, I wouldn't wait. <laughs> like I definitely wouldn't wait. And there's major cost savings in remote work from the employer standpoint as well. I mean, we have candidates telling us that they don't care. They'll lose their clearance for a full-time remote job. They'll go to the commercial sector, which is a whole other podcast in itself because that's going to create a lack of clearances in the market. And that's, you know, we're finally kind of getting around that curve right now. So people are saying that they'll lose their clearance to do remote and take a pay cut to do remote. A lot of people are saying, you know, 10, 20, 25% pay cut as long as it's 100% remote. It's definitely what the candidates want right now. Sure. Well, and that's a good tip to employers. So if they're thinking about it, they need to talk with their government customers if they are a defense contractor and see if working remotely is, you know, at least some of the time. I mean, I refer back to the last contract I was staffing. We had folks working in a SCIF probably 50% of the time, but then they were coming into an OSINT lab at our company's headquarter location for the other 50%. Technically, they could do a lot of that stuff from home. So it's just making the leap to trust your employees to be able to do that work from home if it's accessible. Yeah. And that's a really interesting point too. How much of the work that you're doing on a day-to-day basis is really classified? Right. And I know we talk about that on the clearance jobs board a lot is let's say just say for software development, they may be developing a system totally in an open environment. There's nothing classified about it until it gets deployed into the network or system that it's going to be on. All of that work can be done in a non-classified environment. That's a big part of it, too, is realizing 
do these people really, like you said, need to be on site 100% of the time when maybe 20% of the work that they're doing is classified? That was one of the things coming out of COVID-19, one of the silver linings that really made, I think, you know, the government and industry, you know, take a step back and say, you know, if we can do this from home, then why aren't we? Moving back to recruiters, because I love to dish about how tough jobs are for recruiters. So I know that one thing that you and I have messaged about is, you know, the fact that defense contractors, they are built on staffing. They need the billets filled. That's how you keep the customer happy. That's how you keep the mission fulfilled. Recruiters are put in this tough position of matching requirements, but at the lowest price. Are the candidates there, you know, to be acceptable to that price? Do they have an active clearance? So any ideas on how recruiters can help to combat this? I think, you know, one of my ideas is just really embed yourself in the proposal process when it comes to doing pricing and market research when it comes to salaries and, you know, really talking with your hiring managers there. But would you have any tips, Tom? I love starting with the point of, and it's almost like some companies think it's insulting, but you're a staffing company, you know, like the in the DOD, you're putting butts in seats and you're getting revenue based upon how many people you have in the seat and you're losing revenue based upon all of your vacancies. So the first step for every single company is realizing we are in the people business. Unless you're a huge integrator that's building stuff, different story. But for the most part, you're in the people business. I've been in hundreds of the proposal discussions, hundreds if not thousands, and and talking about market research and pricing. Ultimately, what it always comes down to is what is the price to win? Let's worry about execution later. And which is really every recruiter hates hearing that because, hey, we're execution. We are the ones that have to find the people. It's really tough for companies that are you know, winning based on price. It's, it's a very difficult position for recruiters to be in. My advice for recruiters is everything is data. And those discussions with your business development folks or your program managers about pricing. You know, I hear a lot of recruiters saying, oh, that's too low. Okay, tell me why. Why is that too low? What are you seeing? And then what are the alternatives? So recruiters need to understand, for example, a way that discussion should be had is, hey, I spoke to 20 people that meet the qualifications. They're all about $15,000 over rate. Some of them have higher level clearances than required. Some of them have lower. Some of them have extra certifications. Is there a way we could put these people into different labor categories to be able to afford their salary request? If not, what I'm finding so far is we seem to be about $15,000 under what I think it's going to cost. And then your business development person will say, okay, great. Thank you for that data point. Can you go out and find me cheaper people? And then you say, great, I'm going to go out and find you cheaper people. And maybe you find a handful of people that don't necessarily meet the qualifications 100%, but you're bringing more options to the table. So it's all about that data. And I think where a lot of, you know, I always stand up for the recruiter, but I think where a lot of business development people and, and executives get super frustrated is that lack of data. And is that just like, it's too low and I can't tell you why it's too low, right? But what I found is really, really helpful is we call it like logical alternatives, bring the logical alternatives to the table say, Hey, I can't find someone with five years experience, but this, I can find somebody with this advanced degree and certification has a little bit less experience, but meets the price. Will that work? And it's just really, that is a skill set that I think a lot of recruiters really struggle with. 
because it's somewhat confrontational. But yeah, you have to, to your point about getting embedded into BD and the proposal process, it's not just sitting there and listening to what the price to win is going to be, but it's really bringing data to that discussion and you know understanding you know the marketplace. Now, the one other piece to that that's really important is there has to be like a recruiting advocate, manager, director in that room that is basically saying that same message that the team is finding. So companies that embrace that type of methodology, you know, really seem to do a little bit better. But I will say a lot of times that discussion just ends with, I don't care. We need it to be cheaper. That's the price to win. Find the people. And that's a tough discussion to have. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I feel like I've come to that discussion so many times. I don't think that I know that you're a man of data. I don't think when I was recruiting, I was using data as much as I should have been because you talk about data so much, even in the amount where you're reaching out to candidates, taking a look at the times, what works best. It may even just take, you know, a minuscule amount of your time, but, you know, looking at that data. It'll help you in your recruiting processes. But yes, I've had that conversation so many times where it's like, I don't care. But I think if recruiters start to rely on that data enough and they have enough of those conversations, at some point, the hiring managers are going to be nagged enough to where they have to do something about it in some regard. Yeah. The other thing too, that the CEO from the company that I used to work at, you know, he would always say, don't we have all of this information in the applicant tracking system? And I'm like, yeah, we do. Well, is it searchable? No, it's not. And that's another thing that we're really trying to struggle with with Mount Indy is making sure that the data is put into the ATS in a way that's searchable and consistent. In a perfect world, one of my clients calls me and says, hey, how much are network engineers at the TSSEI in San Antonio? And I say, hold on one sec. Boom, boom, boom. Search a couple fields. The last two years of data says we're seeing those people at 105,000. I think the bigger companies are doing that. But, you know, even for the smaller businesses, it's it's something to start implementing now, just so you have that data and your business development people will love you for it. I promise. No, that's absolutely right. And that sort of goes, again, a podcast in and of itself, talking about applicant tracking systems, recruiters managing those systems. I mean, your database is only as good as your data or vice versa, but it tells a story, but again, business development or hiring managers or executive level of smaller companies being willing to invest in those resources is another important point of recruiting. You know, you can't recruit if you don't have the correct resources. <laughs> right, right. That's a struggle a lot of companies face too. When you really look at, you know, going back to the point of you're in the staffing business, you know, and so, it, it, you know, if you if you embrace that, if you embrace the fact that our company makes money on people and seeds. And, and, and that's truly, you know, I bring up the business de- development example a lot. Like it takes you 18 months to two years to win a sizable contract, but you probably have this insane pile of work on all of your subcontracts that you're not going after for one reason or another. Maybe you don't have the resources, maybe you don't have the bandwidth, maybe you don't have the tools. It is a lot easier to make your numbers as a company filling those positions that are there for you to just put people into than it is to win a large procurement. So if you really think about that and say, okay, where do I want to put my investment as a business? If it's proven that the staffing function is what's driving not only long-term revenue, but net new hires within the year, we should probably invest a little bit more in that function because that's a very quick way 
to revenue. And again, a lot of companies struggle with that investment. Sure. Kind of pivoting, you did mention within the recruiting process, recruiters bringing different types of talent or levels of talent to the table if the price is too high for the qualifications that the government customer you know, is insisting on. Talking about the DOD and the IC sort of pivoting from, I need 10 years, I need this certification, instead of, okay, this candidate has six or seven years, and they're working on this certification. So let's hash that out a little bit, because I'm sure that's something that you run into quite a bit. <laughs> this is something that... I'm going, to, I'm going to trademark this on this podcast. So if anyone steals this, you have to pay me a fee. <laughs> we deal with this in software development a lot. The technology changes so quickly and, and developers, honestly, they may do a year on this language and then say, hey, I, I really want to sharpen my skill set. I'm going to move over and start developing you know, over here on this framework or in this language. And they're switching a lot. And I've recently thought there should be just as you know, for security, we have the security plus, and we understand if anyone has a security plus, they understand the basic fundamentals of IT security and, and, and can have access to DOD systems. There should be something sanctioned by the government, maybe even developed by the government that says, hey, here is a baseline test that forget about the years of experience, but our development shop said, hey, if they successfully pass this test and this certification, we can slot them as a senior level developer or mid-level developer or junior level developer. So taking it away from years of experience and doing it more towards, hey, here's the accepted level of ability. And I don't care if they have one year experience or 10 year experience. If they come in and nail this test, the government recognizes them as being at this level. I mean, something like that would be amazing. It would just be so helpful because what happens now is the whole thing about we want someone with five years experience doing exactly this. I mean, it's so flawed because good employees don't stay doing the same thing for five years. And if they did, they don't want to duplicate that job in their next job. They're looking for a different challenge. That whole philosophy, which I understand why it's in place, but you know, it's built into the acquisitions of these contracts and it, and it makes it very difficult for companies to be successful because the market changes. You know, what a 10-year experienced developer is making today is a lot more than it was five years ago, right? And it's just hard for companies to continue to base their programs off of people that have only done that job for a certain amount of time. And I definitely think the government could benefit from figuring out a way to, to get away from that. I don't even know how you would even start that conversation. I know that for certain, you know, mostly software development or, you know, some sort of IT role, I would ask for waivers from our contracting officer representative because I would find somebody who is so close to that mark, but technically didn't meet those requirements from the RFP. So I would just ask for waivers left and right. And, you know, even just thinking about the time that that wastes, like, why wouldn't you just have this assessment, this baseline assessment for, you know, a quality candidate that can do the role? Well, the waiver thing's so funny too, because you have one KO that says, yeah, no problem. And then this one over here is like, absolutely not. And you're like, okay, <laughs> Like, <laughs> how come it's okay? The over bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah, totally. So the, the waiver thing is, and, and then let's be honest, the person approving the waiver probably doesn't 
understand the technology or the job. So, right. Yeah, they they need that needs to be figured out <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Again, a conversation that I'm not even sure how you would start. We talk about how tough DOD recruiting is ad nauseum, or at least I do on my column at news.clearancejobs.com. There are some today that have become very successful. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, in the past 10 years in such a passive market, you know, there are some really successful recruiters. So, you know, 2021, what do you think makes a rock star recruiter? Yeah, I, ju- I literally just posted this question on Facebook to a group a couple weeks ago. A few years ago, I would say, you just got to be resilient. You got to ask a lot of questions. You you can't take no for an answer. You know, you can't be afraid to pick up the phone. All those things are true, right? But the real rock star recruiters that I follow and, and aspire to be are the ones that they understand all of the open source information and technology that's out there and they know how to use it. And there's some people that like literally have their entire job automated and you know they understand how to scrape data and and pull in large data sets and then you know manipulate that data within an excel spreadsheet and and then set up automations to you know reach out to those people and and things of that nature so moving into 2021 and beyond it's really important that recruiters invest in themselves and that's what i think really takes what it takes to be a rock star recruiter. I mean, these people are almost like programmers, the app, you know, the the automations that they're building and the the recruiters that are, are really figuring out that stuff, watching the YouTube videos, like, you know, trying different things, scraping data. That's a big part of it. And then the other thing is really as stupid as this sounds like personality goes so far. If you're a dead fish, you're in this industry, forget it. I mean, it's so much about just your personality and, you know, being able to connect with people. And, you know, I'd say empathy is a big part of it. You really have to understand the other person's point of view and where they're coming from. The only way to truly understand a candidate's situation is, is to be able to be empathetic and, and, and really listen to them. So those things are still important, like the whole listening aspect and more and more it's becoming you have to be very technically proficient on the data side of recruiting and you have to be able to find people that aren't on the boards i mean that's you can't depend on the boards for every hire but it's it's tough because it really is the university of youtube you know like i spend so much time on youtube just like hey how does that data scraper work and then once i figure out how it works i'm always sitting there like okay great it works but what application do I use it for? Like, how do I even turn this into a good process for myself? So you have to be able to study that stuff and figure out how to pull it into your, you know, into your day to day. And the beautiful thing about all those, those technologies is they're all free. You know, they don't cost the company anything. And it just takes a lot of research by that recruiter to figure out how to use it. So soft sales stuff is still important, but you have to have a thirst for technology and understanding how to, you know, I, I guess to sum up that tirade, it's it's automation. You have to really understand automation and, and start getting that into your process. Sure. Well, and it, it sort of goes along with everything you said. I feel like some of the recruiters or recruitment managers that I, you know, came into contact with with my stint in the DOD, 
if they were becoming stale, if they were just doing the monotonous tasks every day, if they weren't doing that research, if they weren't thirsty for the newest tool, because there are newer tools coming out every day, um, and if they weren't you know, thirsty to automate the processes that were just taking time that didn't have a huge return on investment or if they could be automated, right? those were the ones that sort of fell by the wayside and were kind of left in the dust. Yeah. It's hard to tackle this stuff. And not to mention, like, depending on your security people at your company and your IT people, they may be like, there is no way you're using any of this stuff. Or And again, it, this opens up whole questions about if you're working overseas and you have GDPR, and, and, you know, obviously, but taking all that into account, I know a lot of companies are very hesitant to let recruiters download Chrome extensions and, and have at it. It's a complicated ecosystem for sure. It just takes, you know, tackling one issue at a time. Basically, defense contractors are built on staffing. Recruiting teams are uber important to the DOD and national security apparatus. They are a very important piece of that apparatus. Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Tom owns his own boutique staffing agency. He's the co-founder, Mount Indy, so check out their openings. And if you have any other questions, recruiting questions, candidate questions, you can reach out to us at editor at clearancejobs.com. This is Katie Keller, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clearedcast. For more information on career and recruiting advice, visit news.clearancejobs.com.